Before we start our show today, I just wanted to let all the listeners know that we ran into some technical difficulties while recording this episode with our friend Scott. There are some points in today's episode that are a little scratchy or a little bit of background noise I just couldn't get rid of. came down to the way things were recorded, so I do apologize, and uh, we have taken steps to fix this so it doesn't happen again in the future. To apologize once again, and now on with the show. Thank you. My wee bone is connected to my booze bone. It's connected to my crazy bone. Like I was possessed by alcohol. It had its it had its grip on me. I'm like, what's going on? Why are we having a party here, guys? And the doctor looks at me. She's like, do you know what your BAC was? And I go, no. She's like, it was a 0.54. My my stocking stuffer is always bail. I'm Anthony. And I'm Tyson. We're recovering addicts. This is a podcast about journeys from the darkness of addiction to the sunlight of sobriety. My name is Scott, 38 years old, and I am a recovering alcoholic. And I say recovering alcoholic because I am not recovered, nor will I ever be. This is a daily reprieve. This is something that I have to work on for my entire life. And, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's, it's been a war, I can honestly tell you. Uh, getting sober has been one of the most difficult things I've ever had to do in my life. And... I know that it's something that I'm going to have to work at forever. So having an opportunity to do something like this, get on a podcast and share my story. Um, hopefully, how about someone who's struggling out there, um, fellow alcoholic, you know? So it's just really cool to be doing something like this. Yeah, thanks for sharing. Yeah, I appreciate it, dude. And it's we've gotten really, really good feedback on the episode so far and – I'm really looking forward to learning a little bit more about your story. And I know I can ask you this question with full confidence because I know you're from Canada. So I was wondering if you could tell us <laughs> a little bit about uh, where you grew up in that amazing sign just outside of town there, because that to me was just, I'm thinking about naming it the, the title of your episode, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's funny. Yeah. I, I grew up, I grew up in, uh, I grew up in Canada, born and raised, uh, Grew up in a city called Regina, Saskatchewan, and the sign that Anthony's alluding to is uh, there's a sign outside my seat that says Regina rhymes with fun, and <laughs> you know, you know, you know I, and, and that's how you say it too. It's, it's Regina. Every time I tell people in Chicago here, you know, isn't it Regina? I'm like, no, no, it's nope. it's, Regi- it's Regina. <laughs> so they they. Oh, yeah, they, they they always get a laugh out of that, and you know it's a good icebreaker for sure. So, so yeah, grew up in Canada. Uh, it was cold as balls where I grew up, minus forty degree winters. <laughs> I mean, Chicago winters here do suck, but it's it's almost like t shirt weather for me here. You know, There's nothing for this guy from Regina. Yeah, right. <laughs> had to walk through eight feet of snow to get to school. You know, all that all that stuff. And uh, so it was it, growing up was really cool. I had a lot of friends. I played multiple sports. Obviously, I was born with skates on my feet. You kind of have to where I grew up play hockey. If you didn't, there's something wrong with you. Um, <laughs> and, you know, sports was kind of my outlet, you know, since I was a little kid. I, I played hockey. I was on a Canadian national team for baseball, played football, rugby. Uh, avid golfer. So, I mean, I was, I was involved. Um, school, I was, I, I, 
I don't know if I had ADD growing up as a kid, but I mean, I was the one who was always getting in trouble. We were talking about Regina. Regina. <laughs> Regina, Saskatchewan. That's the city I grew up in, Regina, Saskatchewan. <laughs> Born in Regina. So cold, minus 40 degree weather. Parents tell you go play out in the snow. Walking to school, no bus, nothing like that. It was, it was, it was pretty, pretty mental. You couldn't even go outside. It was so cold. You had to plug your car into uh, these electric heaters. If not, they wouldn't even start, you know. So growing up, I had, you know, quite a, quite a few friends. I played sports uh, my whole life. And that's where I dedicated a lot of my time was, uh, was to my sporting activities you know it was just a really good place to grow up i had lots of friends my family stayed together my my parents uh are still with each other probably important to note that my my dad is uh an alcoholic as well he's in the program he's got 17 years of sobriety and that was yeah that was interesting for me you know i i noticed that a lot of the kids said they didn't want to come over to my house because, you know, Glenn was crazy. They called him Gleneth. And, you know, it kind of makes sense now. My, my dad, he was a great father. Um, I don't want to put, put my dad down or anything because for what he had to do to get sober was just, we're all miracles, you know. And if, if he wouldn't have done the, uh, the steps and taking the time to do what he had to do, uh, I wouldn't be living in Chicago right now. You know, it's just, this program saved his life. This program saved my life. So it's amazing. I mentioned before too, you know, I'm not too sure if alcoholism is something you're born with or it's something that you, you learn elements. I'm kind of a firm believer that it's a little bit of both. I don't know if I was born with this disease, but I sure know that I got it now. So there's no point in me looking back on it and trying to answer all the questions as far as like, why am I an alcoholic? You know, it just is what it is. And that's who I am. Um, I think it's interesting about the part where you had mentioned prior that you noticed some tendencies, right? About growing up that you were kind of always, you were into like extreme sports and stuff, right? Snowboarding. Uh, I would always push the limit. Uh, I wanted to be first place in everything that I did. I want to be the fastest kid. I, I never was really the strongest kid. I had body issues that I thought, you know, I was always skinnier than everybody else. I was afraid to take my shirt off in the locker room. Um, they told me I had an alien body or something like that. You know, I was very self-conscious and super sensitive too. You know, I, I, I just, I let things get to me. I kind of weld all that stuff up inside and I used sports, I guess, as an outlet to let it all out. You know, when I found alcohol, I, I had my first sip of booze when I was six years old. My dad would always leave his Coke on the counter. Well, I thought it was Coke, but it was rum and Coke. And I would always be like, dad's drink tastes different. It tastes different. <laughs> you know, and I would, I would always sip on it when he would go to the bathroom. I don't know if I, I, I got drunk from that, but I do know that I had my first taste of, of alcohol at a very early age. Sure. The drinking age in Canada, it's 17 and 18. So, I mean, I was getting beer at the liquor board, you know, when I was 16 years old, they didn't card us or anything. Like if, if we looked like we were old enough, they would just sell it to us. So is that the first time you would say you got drunk was when you were like 16 or was it before that when you were like, wow, that was the probably, 
The first time I got drunk was, yeah, 16. It was, it was a blackout drunk, I remember. Um, well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a blackout drunk, I remember. What mean? Uh, the, from what I was told, it was, I, I was blacked out. I remember my first high school dance that I went to. We went to my, I mixed every single alcohol that we had in the house. So rum, vodka, whiskey, gin, and I poured it all into one bottle. And me and my friend drank this on our way to the dance. And I'm not sure why or how they let us in. I ended up throwing up in front of the entire school, teachers, (laughs) students. And if you were caught drinking at these gatherings, you were automatically suspended for who knows how long. So I went up to the principal's office and his name was Mr. Churchill. Mr. Churchill goes, Scott, are you not feeling right tonight? And I said, no, I think I got the flu. They let me go. My dad picked me up and he just swore his ass off at me. He knew I was drunk and a hockey game at 6 a.m. the next morning. And it was the worst hockey game I ever had in my life. I remember I just, I got hit so hard. I was seeing stars. And I, it, I was like, I'm never going to drink again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know that battle cry. Yeah. Oh man. That's interesting. I mean, I, that really just is a, so similar to how I grew up too with, with what I thought, like right there, that's pretty interesting about the perfectionism and the like wanting to be first and everything and how that, that kind of correlates there. Yeah. And you know, I, I was very, very good at, at what I did when I played sports. I suffered a pretty serious injury in my senior year of high school. I tore my groin and I was knocked out of everything that I could participate in. I couldn't skate. I couldn't run. I couldn't throw. And that's really when I wouldn't say the drinking took off, but drugs is a part of my story too. Marijuana, mostly. My friends smoked a lot of pot in high school and I definitely did my fair share. And when I wasn't able to participate in sports, I used, you know, marijuana to help pass some time. I was depressed. I was, I was really depressed at, you know, a young age because I felt like my body let me down. I let, I felt like someone let me down, you know, and I just kept asking myself, why, why did this have to happen to me? I was just starting to grow into my body. I was just starting to get these special skills that I needed to be. I wanted to be a professional athlete and you know, I, I was, I felt I was robbed from that, you know? What, what was your sport that you were, you felt really robbed from? Mostly hockey, okay. mostly, mostly hockey. I was on the Canadian national team for baseball. Oh, wow. And yeah, I, I, I pitch, I was left-handed. Yeah. I pitched in college myself too. I wasn't any good, but I, I did. So yeah, I, I, I always wished I was left-handed. Yeah. I was, I was a good pitcher. <laughs> I was, I was good all around. That's interesting. The loss of the, the, the identity and the path that is, that is so disheartening. My, uh, my brother's was very similar in that he tore his ACL as a football player. And I've, I've seen that as such a, such a devastating fork in the road. Yeah. It's debilitating, especially when that's kind of your outlet and what you use, you know, so you can't play sports. So it sounds like you, you know, start smoking pot a little bit more aggressively and drink a little bit more what happens next? I mean, do you just kind of picked it up pretty aggressively as your sport or, or, or what's life looking like now? I mean, all my friends drank, all my friends smoked. I don't know how many of them are still drinking or alcoholics, but it was just growing up in Canada. It was, it was different. Like it was 
more socially accepted. I know the drinking age in the States is 21 and, you know, uh, up there it was, it was completely different. It didn't really take control of my life. It was just part of my life. I was still functioning at a young age. I mean, I was now say graduated high school. So I'm like 18, 19. So it's not an issue, right? It's just having fun, partying. And when I say that, I mean, we had fun and we worked hard, we played hard and we got our stuff done. There was a time when we were sitting at the dinner table as a family and my dad kind of looks at us and he goes, so what do you guys think of Chicago? And I'm from Regina, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I go, yeah, Chicago, Jenny Jones, Michael Jordan, Blackhawks. Yeah, I know Chicago. And then he's like, what do you guys think about moving there? As a kid growing up, and just knowing the bare minimum of Chicago, Al Capone, you know, the history. Right. I, yeah. I, it, it, was, it was totally crazy. And I thought my dad was joking at first. And turns out he wasn't. And we as a family decided to move to Chicago. Wow. Even as a kid knew that I wasn't going to live in my hometown for the rest of my life. It it was a strange feeling. Like when my dad told us that he had a job opportunity in Chicago, I mean, I almost was, I was relieved. I was like, okay, yes, finally, we got to get out of here. You know, how old were you at this point? I was 19 years old. 19. Okay. 19. So fresh out of high school, moved to Chicago. Don't know a soul. Um, Perfect timing for you. Yeah. Right. I'm that Canadian kid. My parents are like, Oh, we found a good college for you to go to. It was a community college. And, I hated it at first. I couldn't work. I couldn't, I I couldn't do anything. I I had a visa, you know, which was a six month visa. So I was depressed, didn't know anybody. So I moved back to Canada right after maybe about six, seven months. I went back home and I lived back home for about two years. When I did that, I had no regrets. I wanted to leave. I wanted to go back home. After about two years, I finally decided Chicago's where my family is. Why don't we, why why don't we take a chance, Scott, and move to Chicago and see, see what life is like there. Right. So I pack up my things, get in my car and I go, before I left, my dad told me, he goes, Scott, make sure you don't have anything in your car. Okay. I'm like, yeah, don't worry about it, dad. Nothing in my car. Um, I remember I had this canister of just like sticks and stems, you know, stuff you couldn't even smoke. Right. Nothing. And I couldn't find it. I, I couldn't find it. Couldn't find it. Couldn't find it. And finally, I was like, okay, it's not on my person. So I get to the border. I'm at North Dakota. Border Patrol. They're like, okay, we're going to search your car. No worries. Start searching my car. I'm inside. And they're out there for an hour. And I'm like, what is going on here? Can I just get out of here? And the guy comes back, the Border Patrol agent. He's got that canister I was looking for. And he goes, What's this? And I look at the guy literally and I go, oh, you found it. I was looking for that, you know? <laughs> and he's like, he's, he's, he's like, he's like, is there anything else in your car? There's this old guy sitting in a rocking chair with a long piece of grass in his mouth. And he just goes, yep, you're just the kid we've been looking for. And I, I, I thought I was in like fantasy world right now. I'm like, what are you guys talking about? I'm not transporting anything. They right. thought I was, who knows what they thought, but they stripped my car to the bone they didn't find anything 
the guy comes up to me and he's just like, all right, you got two choices of what you can do. He's like, you can plead guilty or not guilty to transportation of a legal substance across the border. And I'm like, you're arresting me for this. I, I, I was in shock. I, and you couldn't do anything with this stuff. So right. yeah, they arrested me at the border. I spent three days in Bowbells, North Dakota, population 50. I was 51. And uh, yeah, orange jumpsuit, flip flops. Wow. I was in this little cell with like six other guys and I get up there and I'm just, I'm, I'm so annoyed. I'm like, I, I, I want to go home. I should be going home. And then this one guy just says to me, he's like, so what are you in here for? And I'm like, all right, well, I tell him what happened. They all started laughing at me collectively. They're like, you'll be out tomorrow. Don't worry. And, you know, three days come along and finally I got out. I was the worst phone call I've ever had to make in my life to my dad to tell him what had happened. Right. He's just, you know, he's just like, you're joking, right? Where are you? And I go, no, I'm, this is where I'm at. And that drive home was horrible. And before then, one of the only times I ever prayed in my life, I got down on my, on a knee and I prayed to God. I said, God, I'm moving to Chicago, you know, let this work. I'm finally accepting this, this new Avenue in my life. 45 minutes later, I was in handcuffs. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Yeah. So a little twist of fate there. It's frustrating because, like, welcome to the United States, right? It's just rough, man. God, what a hell of a way to fucking go. Don't <laughs> – that was – that's incredible, man. Living in Chicago, I started working. You know, I went to school. My What I wanted to do was I wanted to become a firefighter, so I did the EMT classes. I eventually went through paramedic school and graduated from that. For me, meeting friends, I, I'm a very social individual be around people. I like the energy that comes with that. And booze was always, always around. And that's how I socialized. That's how I got into groups. That's how I kind of like inserted myself into this, this world. And alcohol was, you know, everybody drank. I, you know, had turned 21. Finally, I was able to go out to bars and meet more people. And that's when things started taking off was because I'd already been drinking from 17 on, but when I moved to the States, I I couldn't drink. So I was, I wasn't drinking for a couple, maybe like two years when I was down here until I turned 21. When I turned 21, I wouldn't say that all bets were off, but it was back to having fun again. Right. Right. Libations, Cubs games, a whole new experience for me that I never thought that I'd be going to Blackhawks games, you know, friends going to the city and I started meeting more and more people and life expanded for me. Drinking expanded as well. I wasn't suffering any major consequences during this time. I was just really, really having a good time for a couple of years. And there was a point when I remember my dad one night, he was laying in his bed. I'll never forget this. I walk in and I was like, hey, what's going on, Dad? It was like 9 o'clock on a Friday, which was unusual. And he didn't roll over, and he just said to himself, son, I'm sick. And I was like, well, what are you sick from? And he wouldn't really tell me. He uh, was admitting to himself, to me at that time, that he was an alcoholic and he needed help. We had just moved here to the city, you know, maybe a year or two. If he didn't get help, then he was going to lose his job. He was going to 
probably lose the house that we just bought in Chicago and um, he needed to get right. And my dad's one of those guys that went to the program first day, never had a drink since. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing, man. That is amazing. Jesus. And it, it, it changed his life. He looks great. He's a dive master, um, scuba dives. He's in shape. Um, just the turnaround that I've seen in my father over the last 15 years has just been amazing. Now he's still the same ornery guy that, <laughs> of course, you know, that I grew up with, be. but I mean, being stubborn, I think is genetic too. Yeah. No doubt. No <laughs> doubt. Well, you know, you gotta be uh, stubborn to be an alcoholic in a way. I, I agree so. with that. I do. And, and, you know, Scott, I think that nature and nurture, like you said, I think it's a blend of both. And I, I hate to maybe simplify things too much, but you, you do what you're taught, you know, mainly. I mean, we're all predisposed for certain things. I mean, whatever that is. And, and you know, I, I was the same way. My, I believe that I was predisposed to alcoholism. However, I, I can't neglect the fact that I made choices to get me here. Um, and, and maintain and sustain those choices over the long haul. So again, that you, I, I'm not alleviating the fact that this is entirely my fault, but I do think that we're predisposed in certain cases. And more importantly, I think you do what you're taught. And if, you know, like you said, and like for me too, I saw my dad drink every single day I saw him. There was not a single day that went by that he did not drink and drink excessively. And again, I'm not blaming him. I, I keep reiterating that because I don't want anyone to ever listen to a snippet of this and say that, I'm justifying my shit that way. And that's not what I'm doing, but I, I do think that we're predisposed. So the reason I circled that back around is it's awesome for your dad to make those hard choices and fight the good fight being older at that point, you know, because mm-hmm. a lot of people just throw their hands up and say, this is who I am. Fuck it. And it's really nice to hear that your dad didn't do that. That's great. Yeah. And this is something that I had to own myself and I had a difficult time getting into the program because as my dad was getting sober, he noticed things in me. For anybody who is out there who has a father in the program or an alcoholic, I've got to say it's probably one of the hardest things for a father to do to see his son go through the same thing that he did. Because my, my dad, was, he, he would push the AA stuff on me. I, hadn't, I wasn't having any of it. You know, I was like, I, I, I want a dad, not a sponsor. Um, I'm not doing this AA stuff. Like, yeah you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not ready for this stuff. And I really had to burn. I, I mean, I had to burn everything to the ground before it was time for me to be like, do you really want to live this way for the rest of your life? And it really comes down to two choices. For me, it was, do you want to live or do you want to die? Because the way I drank, the way that a lot of other alcoholics, I'm sure drink, it, it just comes down to that. And the hardest thing that I've ever had to do is get sober. But when you do it, it's the best thing that you'll ever do. I agree. What, tell us um, a little bit about what, how much we're talking about. And if you could share any, any details like that would be helpful just for the listeners to understand when you say that it's either life or death, what, what you mean by that. When I was going through paramedic school, and this is another thing that you know, I was super, super amped to get accepted in this course. This is what I wanted to do. It was very difficult time-wise. I'm, I'm not the best person at managing my time. The drinking had been getting more noticeable when I started school and I used alcohol to help me sleep and I was self-medicating 
I developed some anxiety through this program. And a lot of it was like fear, fear of failure. And I, I was really, really pushing myself. And I'm very hard on myself when I shouldn't be. And I don't give myself enough credit. And that's something that I have been looking into as of late. But I would drink to go to sleep, just a few beers. I wasn't guzzling down vodka at that point in time, but I was well on my way. So after I graduated finally from paramedic school and passed the state exam, I did very well. I felt like I had accomplished everything. I was like, done. Okay, cool. Now, now it's time to go off. And oh, I, I picked up drinking pretty heavily. I got, I, I worked in the emergency de department at a hospital close to my house. One night I got into an argument with my ma and went to a movie theater with a bottle of vodka, drank that during the movie, drove home, got pulled over. And that's when I got my first DUI. They took me to the jail cell. And next thing I know, two medics, and I know the cops, I know the medics, because I've been in the ER seeing these guys for the last couple of years now. The paramedics come up to my door. They're like, hey, we got to take you to the hospital. And I'm like, well, why? And they go, well, city ordinance say that, you know, if you're above this certain blood alcohol level, you need to be checked out by a doctor. So where do they take me? They take me to the hospital that I worked at for the last five years, handcuffed. I see all my peers people I've worked with. It was one of the most embarrassing wow. situations that I've, of my life, you know, like it was just, it was harsh. It was, it was really tough. That's rough. Yeah. So now I'm thinking, okay, no more fire department. I got this on my record and the depression sets in. For some reason, everything happens around Christmas time. I either get arrested or you get a DUI around Christmas. I don't know why. <laughs> my, my stocking stuffer is always bail. You know, it's just, so that happened. And then, you know, I continued to drink. And one night, I, I mean, I, I had been drinking nonstop for, I think, probably close to a week. One night, my dad found me outside of his bedroom and I was on the floor. He called his buddy and they both came and took me to the hospital. And I was walking and I was talking. I remember this, the, uh, Tech comes in, draws my blood, and 15 minutes later, the entire emergency room is filled with nurses and doctors, and I'm like, what's going on? Why are we having a party here, guys? And the doctor looks at me. She's like, do you know what your BAC was? And I go, no. She's like, it was a .54. She said wow. that. She goes, she's Damn. like, I've been a medical professional for 30 years. She's like, I have not. You should be intubated right now. I don't know how you're you know, conscious and you would think that that would wake you up. Right. But that was just the beginning of my, you know, six years of torture that alcohol. I was the same way as you, man. If that makes you feel any better, I started my drinking career in the ER basically yeah. just like you, them telling me there's no way you should be alive. So it took me a long time to, to figure it out as well. I know it's, it's, it's rough because I think, I was possessed by alcohol. It had its, it had its grip on me. And every time that something like that would happen, I'd get out, things be going good for a little while and get the job, get the girl. Yeah, sure. I can 
still drink. I, I mean, normally, and then gradually, you know, maybe a month or two, you think you can handle it a little bit. And then all of a sudden you're back down, falling down that mountain. Exactly. And each, each time you fall, it gets lower and lower and lower and lower. Yeah. Uh, for me, it, it, it literally is, is one drink. It's one toke. My weed bone is connected to my booze bone. That's connected to my crazy bone. Like I can't do any of that stuff anymore or yeah. it's, it's game over. Yeah. It's just, it's just mental. This sickness. The same way. I am exactly the same way. And in, in that regard where one, one drink, forget it. I mean, I'm right back at it. I'm a six pack down, a bottle of vodka in, I got a, a eight ball of blow in my pocket and two packs of cigarettes and I'm fucking <laughs> off to the races. He and moves it, quick. It, I do. And, and I know that I have that. And like you said, and then you, I, I used to justify the harder the fall, like the, the, I would get smacked around, you know, cause I'm just wasted and doing stupid shit. And I would justify it by talked about this in previous episodes, but I would justify it, Like I got a good job. I'm fine. I can afford it and make up some bullshit, whatever the fuck that is. And yeah. So I think a lot of people share that same story where you know what I think is interesting domino. is what you just said there about the job stuff. What I think is, is interesting about, um, you know, the story you just told us about growing up, you had that hockey game at six in the morning, right? When <laughs> your dad was, you know, probably not very happy with you and all this, but there was, at least for me, cause I was the same. I grew up playing all these competitive sports and, I was, you know, I was good in school too. And I always used sports above all as this like crutch of any time, you know, especially with in the beginning of my drinking habits, like, oh, look, I'm, I'm an athlete. I'm in good shape. I'm, you know, all these, oh, I'm still on the team. Like, what do you, you know, and that was at the early days of it. And then I started to do the same thing, like you were saying, Anthony, and it just kind of clicked with that probably started with the sports thing where you're kind of justifying shortcomings in your life. And I remember doing that being like in, in school growing up and stuff. Ah, he's the quarterback. Like who cares if he's a hothead, you know, <laughs> that kind of stuff. And I, it's just interesting. I think it, that's where it sort of started, at least for me, I'm speaking for myself. So you've got um, 0.54 BAC. 0.54. And then you're still not shaking it loose, right? You said that. 0.54. Wow. Yeah, yeah, dude, it's that's it's a high that's one. a monster. What, what was that? Just to update us, because I know we've had some pretty some high BACs. My own, including, was like a point three eight when I landed myself in in you know close to death. Was what was your run up to getting to that again? I mean, I just had been holed up in my because at this point I wasn't even going out. I was just sitting in my room, just drinking by myself. So it went from bottles of vodka to you know the handles and Got it. just yeah so and yeah that was and and that's my first experience with going to the hospital for alcohol anything i was admitted um i stayed you know a week in the hospital and that's when the first time i was really introduced to the program these two guys showed up to my room and they had a this this blue book, whatever this blue book was, you know, and they gave, they gave it to me and they said, Scott, you think you're an alcoholic? I don't know. I just like to drink. And that's when I was really introduced to the program. And then I went to my first, um, well, after I got out of the hospital, I started over again and I went on this snowboard trip 
with these doctors I used to work with. You know, I, I remember not wanting to drink because I didn't want people to know who I actually was. You know, I didn't want them to see me drink on this snowboard trip. So I was white knuckling it. I had a few beers here and there. Mm-hmm. And uh, we went to this bar at night and I ordered a couple round of drinks for the docs. And then next thing I know, uh, I was in the back of this ambulance and I had a grand mal seizure in this bar in front of like 350 people. And they said that it looked like I got struck by lightning. I was on the ground for at least five minutes, they said just convulsing on the ground. And that was my snowboard trip. That was the first day that I got there. You can, it's just such a weird feeling. Um, Wow. This anxiety, I I never had panic attacks before, but I felt like I was having a panic attack almost. And um, it's just, it's your body literally saying I'm done. And I mean, that connection just shuts off and, you know, your, your body just goes into survival mode and it just, that was, and you would think that I would stop drinking after that. Right. But no, that's just, that's just the beginning. I carried on like that for. And how long ago, just to get me back on the timeline, like where at this point now you're about how old when this occurs? uh, I was probably about probably like early, early thirties. Okay. Early thirties. I'm 38 now. So so we'll say about uh, seven late, years ago or so. Yeah, like late twenties, early thirties. Cool. So, um, you know, I, I just the hardest thing for me was just admitting that I was an alcoholic. I just I just didn't want to admit it. I didn't I didn't want to admit it. I didn't want any part of the program. Um, I knew what I was doing was killing me. I was going to do it regardless. Uh, and my my story is i mean relapse is a part of my story uh so i mean can i ask a quick question scott i'm sorry to interrupt but i'm i'm just yeah. curious um with your persistence uh, was it a persistence because you were having fun or was it persistence because you were you just physically needed it or is it a little combination of both? And it sounds like a stupid question to anyone that isn't an alcoholic. I used to, it started out chasing the fun and then it, I had to chase demons after that. Was that a little bit of a mix for you? It was, it was a mix for me. Part of it was that I didn't know how to tell people that I was an alcoholic without feeling ashamed or embarrassed. So I didn't know yeah. how, I would able be able to hang out with anybody. Uh, I was always concerned about what other people thought of me. Oh, Scott, alcoholic. Okay, we don't want to be his friend, or yeah. you know, we can't hang out with this guy. And that was it was such a mental battle, like be, trying to be accepted. And that's what got me into a lot of trouble, is because I would want to fit in. So if somebody offered me a drink, I didn't know how to say no, and then a relapse would happen and it would get worse like it did before. I would lose my job again, lose a relationship. And it just, the cycle repeat itself. Yeah. You know, so the mix definitely. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't having fun anymore towards the end and nobody does. You don't go into this AA program on a winning streak, you know, it's just, no doubt. Right. <laughs> that's perfectly stated. Actually, that's, that's great. That's actually the best of that's, that's really well put. You, you don't go. Yeah. That's, that's solid. 
Um, so I guess that drinking career lasted and right around Christmas time last year, things started to get real bad. Like I was malnourished. Uh, my body was, was dying. I, I was dying. Like I, I wasn't eating anything and it was sad. I didn't know what to do. My parents were at their wits end. And so I, Started getting better after that. I, I started going to meetings and doing the program. And so I had a couple months of sobriety up until, you know, I think mid July. And then I went out to Colorado. This was last year. I really just had one last, one last bang, one last hurrah. Um, I wasn't planning on doing that, but that's what happened. Came back, same thing over again. Just, and at this point, I don't have a license now. Um, you know, I received another DUI and I was depressed. Uh, literally, like the mental anguish that I was going through was just unbearable. I, I felt so alone. I was, I was in this dark hole. I didn't know how I was going to get out of it. Um, I was starting to just really, I think I was going crazy because the only thing that would help me sleep at night was booze and I didn't want to drink anymore, but I had to, that's the worst feeling in the world. You know, my buddy, I, I have really, really good friends. My friends came by who aren't in the program, but they're just really close to me and they just picked me up. I said, you know, Scott, you can do this. You can do this. You can do this. You know, you're a good person. You, you have worth, you have something to offer, you know, and it just, it kept going on in my head. Like, why am I doing this to myself? Why am I doing this to my parents? Um, just stop it. Just stop it. Went to the hospital again. I actually did my fantasy football draft from my hospital bed and <laughs> won the league. Uh, hey, of course you yeah. did. He's still competitive. <laughs> yeah, of I love I it. Of course never I get did. this guy down. No, never. And, uh, you know, somebody talked to me. They asked me if I wanted to go to a sober living house in Chicago. But before this happened, and this is important too, because this is like a turning point in my life, I, I never able to say no to a drink. It was, I had just gotten out of the hospital. I was not doing well. I wasn't able to sleep. And it was early in the morning and I decided to go for a run. And on my way back from 7-Eleven, I had a Gatorade bottle and I'm walking home and I see this bottle of vodka on the road, okay? And I was like, oh, I wonder if there's anything in there. And I kick it. And it is like pretty much a full bottle of vodka. I sniffed it, and it, 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 was, it was vodka just laying there. I said to myself, oh, man, you can drink that. Nobody will know. And for the first time in my life, I remember this little voice in the back of my head. It just said, Yes, you will know. I kicked wow. that bottle. I tossed it away. I went home. I called my sponsor who was helping me out. I told him what happened. And I was relieved like for the first time because it was so hard to just be able to make that conscious decision to just say no. Like I had to wow. say it to myself out loud. I had to say no. I don't want to do that anymore. And I, I went home and I just... I knuckled it, you know. That's and massive. 
That's yeah, a that big, was, that's a, that's a huge turning point. I'm glad you went back and told us that portion of the story. That's, that's the point in my, I mean, because what you said there was so critical. So the part where you said you will know, or, or, you know, who yeah. will know you will know. I mean that, cause I was waiting for it. I was waiting for the moment when you chose yourself, right? When you realized it was you the whole time, so to speak, right? I've, I've noticed that with myself with, there's a lot of different ways to arrive at it, but man, that, that's amazing. It's a big deal. Yeah, I, I, it's a conscious effort, and it was a conscious decision, and um, I made it that time. Because if I would have taken that drink, who knows what would have happened? All and right. What was um, it before that though? Like, was missing? Because I always wondered. Because your story is very similar in terms of like how I took, you know, a really long time to sort of figure it out between what other people would have been, you know, probably done with. Right there in that moment, it clicked with you where you said, "You will know. You know who will know. You will know." Was that, you think, the reason? Because you, you were saying before, you know, you, you wanted to do it for your parents. You wanted to do it for all these other things. I was like that, too. W- was that the thing? Was that the missing link? I, I was just tired. I was tired. And I didn't want to do it anymore. I just, I just said to myself, I was like, why don't you just give this a shot? Like, what is, right. the, wor- what is the worst thing about being sober? You know, you, you, yeah. you, you can't F up anymore. You know what I mean? Like you, you, you can socialize with people. You can have your, your brain back. You can, you know, like what is so bad about being sober? And it's just kind of, I was just done. For people listening that, that haven't had to or have not yet fought this fight, that's what you just described is a huge moment. Not just who's going to know, I will know. That's obviously the pinnacle, but... The, the, the fear layer that we all have had, I had, was what's the worst that's going to happen being sober? That question is fucking everything because in order to make the leap towards the sunshine, to be in the sunshine, everything fucking changes. And that is a scary fucking concept until you take the first step of I'm not going to pick up that bottle of vodka in the street. This is for me. And then you realize that you don't want to do what you did. You don't want to be the same person. You want to be like you just described all the good things. But that moment, tiny little, we call it, it's a moment of everything and nothing at the same time. Yeah. And it's so fucking critical. And every single guest on the show has talked about that particular moment in a different way. But the concept is you have to choose yourself. There, nobody can push you. And that moment is huge. And then you, you have to kind of put your arms up and say, fuck it. I'm doing this and I'm not afraid anymore. Yeah, you, you're totally onto it, man. And it's like, I think some people call that an epiphany where, you know, or whatever you want to use as the word where you have this break, this aha moment is used a lot, maybe a little bit too much. But like, I think it's more profound than that in a sense where like you said, Scott, like I, I was done, right? Like there was... Uh, no going back was this threshold kind of a thing where the decision was made, the realization had been arrived at in such a level that now, you know, you're, you're basically pointed the skis down the hill. You're not going back up. Right. There's an analogy that I like to uh, use and you guys are familiar with the Shawshank Redemption, right? Yeah. Yeah. Remember when Andy Dufresne, he's getting out of prison and he's in there for a crime he didn't commit. And that guy has to crawl through 
miles of shit, sewer, and he's just crawling through that. And then he finally gets out and he's free. And he's got the rain on him and it just cleans off all that shit that he'd been living through for the last however many years, 20 years. And that's kind of what I feel like that is was for me. You know, I, I just had to go through all that stuff to finally be free, you know, and everybody's story is different. Everybody's pain threshold is different. We all go through, you know, different uh, situations, but you know, we all want to end up with the same goal and that's just to live a happy, fulfilling, sober life. And, you know, God doesn't make junk. I'm, I'm a full, <laughs> you know, he doesn't. Yeah, and, I agree with you. You know, you got to want it though. You got to thing. It. You got to want it. I mean, with the program, I, I, I had always been one foot in, one foot out, one foot in, one foot out. And that was my MO, you know, never worked the steps, do any of that stuff, sponsor, you know, I'd say I have one, but now I've fully embraced who I am, what I am. And the program has, you know, it's, it's saved my life. I've connected with people on a completely different level, uh, like-minded people. I've been going to meetings. Uh, unfortunately, this whole pandemic thing is kind of, put a wrench into that, but you know, there's other ways to connect and you know, I, I've, I've jumped in all the way. I love it. What's life like now? I mean, I know you'd mentioned before we, we had talked in uh, on a call prior to recording the session here that we're at the episode. One of the things you said, it's a great day, no pills, potters, or potions. And I love that. No pills, uh, potters, or potions. And, and I dig it because you know, it's that simple, right? I mean, it just is that simple. And, and the fact that you're, you're doing it, you're living it, you're, you're clean at, at, at many levels. Um, I, I love it, dude. And, and I think that what's the, the coolest, I don't know if anyone caught this yet, but I'm going to circle back to it. The fact that you consciously made a choice to move into a sober home as well. I'm not going to say where or any details because that's not important. But the point is you consciously chose to pick up steak move into a sober home to give yourself the absolute best possible chance to succeed. And even after you make the choice to live in the sunshine, to be clean, you still have to make good choices. You got to build new routines and you've got to be committed to it every fucking day. Cause that the next, you know, any moment can be the moment that shit goes bad and you have to live. You got to do the right thing to stay on, in the sunshine. And for the listeners out there, you have to realize to, to, to make such a drastic change in a positive way for everything. You tighten the bolts and everything. It's, it's pretty fucking cool, man. It's a really good story. And I, I'm so glad that you came to tell it. And I, it's, it's, a, it's an impressive one, dude. It really is. Well, I appreciate that, Anthony. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not over. Right. The, the pages are still being written. Yeah. You know, you know, and you're a very young man. I'm a young man. I, I, I appreciate that. And I, what can I say? Things are good. Every day is a gift. That's why they call it the present. <laughs> is that a good one, Tyson? I yeah. knew he was going to drop that on you and I was dying to hear your reaction. No, I'm, a, I'm a huge present moment junkie. You like that one? 
It's a good one, dude. It's gonna be the title of the uh, of your episode, man. Every day is a gift. That's why they call it the present. I don't know. He had a few bombs in there, man. He had some he hot lines. He had like, uh, you don't go into AA on a win streak. <laughs> God, God doesn't make junk. God doesn't make junk. I like that. There was one before it too. I forgot. Some solid stuff, dude. So one, one last question, Scott. You know, we don't live in a world of advice, right? We live in a world of action in terms of recovery. But anyone listening that, you know, any words of advice that you could share and it's not to be prophetic, but I'm wondering if, if you have something that people could lean into a little bit and uh, maybe make it their day today. Somebody okay. out of their seat into their first step of sobriety right here. If you're feeling that you're hopeless, give yourself a chance. and know what you're going through sucks. You cannot walk a mile in somebody else's shoes, but you could definitely follow in their footsteps. Please think you have an issue with alcohol it doesn't have to end there you can totally beat this disease and it is a disease just be patient and things will get better I didn't believe that never thought things would get better and things still are gonna suck it doesn't matter but at least now you have feelings that you can really feel and you can go through things without having this clouded mind impaired judgment and you can just really kick ass life kick life in the ass i just try and tell i tell people i'm allergic to alcohol every time i drink i break out in handcuffs thank you for listening to the dismantled life podcast be sure to check us out at dismantled.life if you join our community i will send you a shiny new pocket trigger and sobriety journal branded with the dismantled life podcast logo Have a wonderful day. Stay in the sunshine.